Well, let's open our Bibles back up to Luke, Luke 18, and uh, this morning we continue trekking through the last quarter of this book. And last Sunday, as you might recall, we spent some time looking at one of the most memorable encounters that Jesus had in his earthly ministry, and that's with the rich young ruler. When you talk about the personal encounters Jesus had, you think about Lazarus, you think about Nicodemus. The rich young ruler is right up there, and for good reason. It's a, a hard-hitting lesson that comes out of that. It's a hard-hitting challenge to anyone who desires to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. And we began to see that last week. We began to see what it's like for someone to, to hear the gospel, to hear this is what you need to do, and yet to not do it, to, to go away sad. The rich young ruler went away sad. He had said to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And if you recall, the rich young ruler thought himself moral. He thought that he was generally a righteous man. When Jesus said, keep the commandments, Remember what he said? He said, I've kept them all since my youth. And he, Jesus actually listed off five of the commandments, the fifth commandment through the ninth commandment. But he goes away sad because he is rich. He goes away sad because he owns much property. And he doesn't want to give that up. He's not prepared to give up what he has in this earthly life to gain what he can have in eternal life. In fact, we are led to think, we are led to see through that that he, he actually covets more of what he already has. That is what we saw last week with the rich young ruler. We saw that the salvation of our God depends nothing on us. The rich young ruler would have been someone who would have been, you would have thought, he is a prototypical guy that we want to see in our church. He is a young man. He is a moral young man, but but he was stuck in what he did. Salvation does not depend upon us. Salvation depends upon the power of God working through us. It depends upon what Jesus Christ has done in our place. And we need only to entrust ourselves to Him. Remember the verses I shared with you last week from John chapter 6. The work of God is for us to believe in the One whom He has sent. So as we continue in Luke 18 this morning, before we even get into the text, I just want to ask again, something for you to be thinking about as we do this. Are you believing? Are you entrusting yourself wholly this morning to the One whom He has sent? Are you entrusting yourself to Jesus whom God has sent. We saw that eternal life is free. Of course, Romans 6.23 is clear that eternal life is the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. But it is not cheap. It was bought with His own blood. And we're going to see more about that this morning. Jesus had said, come follow Me. That would mean He, he would have to leave all He knew, all He had, all he was familiar with, all of his aspirations, he would have to leave behind and become second priority or less 
because Jesus is the Lord. So we saw he didn't follow Jesus. This morning I want to look a little bit more about those who don't go away sad. Hopefully, and hopefully you fall into this group already this morning. I want us to look a little bit more about what it takes to be one of those who doesn't go away sad. So let's read chapter 18, verses 28 through 34. Then we'll pray again, and then we'll we'll dig into this. This is right on the heels of Jesus saying, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Verse 28, Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Let's just pray one more time and and then let's talk more about this. Father, these are Your words. They are words from God. They are words from the One who has created this world. You have created us. And Father, help us to treat these words with that gravity. There's no part of Your Word which we should treat flippantly, Father. Help us to treat Your words with the, the seriousness due Your name. Help us not to be flippant with how we proclaim and hear and respond to Your Word. I pray, Father, that Your Holy Spirit might compel us to come to You this morning, to conform us to the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. And help us to more clearly perceive the glory of the gospel and the riches that await everyone who believes in you, who calls on your name. Make us faithful. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll start off with an illustration. Um, I don't usually do that, but I was thinking about this yesterday. About nine years ago, a movie came out called Fireproof. You may have seen it. It's a Christian-themed movie about marriage. Um, It was written and directed and produced by believers, and many of those who acted in it are believers. And it's about a man, a firefighter, and his wife. His wife works PR for a hospital, and their marriage was breaking apart. Um, Neither one was a Christian, and you just see in the first 15 to 20 minutes of the movie how their love has grown cold. Their, their love for one another has grown cold. And it comes to a point where the woman says, I want a divorce. And the man 
he's calling his dad and telling him all about this. And the man's dad suggests that he do something called the Love Dare, which you may have also heard about that, even if you haven't seen the movie. And it generally is for 40 days he would do something specifically for his wife. Even if it was a little thing, he would do something specific to show his love for his wife. Uh, with the hope of reconciliation, with the hope of avoiding divorce. And after the first few days, he's going through this stuff and it, it doesn't seem to be working. You know, he, uh, he calls her at work just to check on her. You get the sense that he hadn't been doing that very much. He makes her coffee in the morning and she kind of blows that off. He buys her flowers, but he doesn't buy her very nice flowers. They're the, kind of the cheapest thing he can buy. And that... that it doesn't really go anywhere. And he gets frustrated, and so he's eventually talking to his dad and saying, I'm ready to give up. And his dad travels down, and long story short, his dad shows him that he's not capable of loving his wife in the, the best way because he doesn't know love in the best way. He needs Jesus Christ. And he, he comes to saving faith at that point in the movie. And after he does that, he rededicates himself to the task of trying to win his wife back. And he knew it wouldn't be easy. It wasn't easy. And he says to his father in a phone call, you know, I really wasn't doing this with my heart before, but now, now I am. And, and he, he really begins to sacrifice himself and the things that he has treasured in the past. He begins to sacrifice himself for his wife. He begins to forsake the things that he used to run after for the sake of his wife. His wife's love becomes his passion alongside loving Christ. As I was thinking through the ramifications of the rich young ruler, I was thinking about that. He was ready to abandon everything besides Jesus if it meant making things right with his wife. And eventually they do reconcile. If you haven't seen it, sorry for the spoiler. But they do uh, make up. And uh, it's been out for nine years, so I, I, don't, I feel a spoiler alert, spoiler alert is not really necessary. Anyway, my point coincides with what we just read. What do we have to leave when we claim Jesus as our Lord? What do we leave? That's really the point of Luke 18 verses 28 through 34. Yeah, Jesus has just told this young man, this rich young ruler, basically to do a 180 with his life. To turn around. To go the other way that you are going. You may think that you are moral. You may think that you are righteous. And you may be treasuring these things you have on earth. But you need to do a complete 180 if you want to be my disciple. You need to do a complete 180 if you want to inherit eternal life. You need to sell everything you have and you need to distribute it to the poor to follow me. And again, as I said last week, as we read last week, the man goes away sad because he's not ready to leave his life. He's not ready to lose his life. He's not ready to change his life. He's not ready to alter his way of life if it means following Jesus. This happened in front of people. People saw this. There was an audience to this encounter. 
Remember in the preceding verses, Jesus was telling parables. In verse 9, He told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector to those who thought themselves righteous. Remember that? And then in verse 15, they, that is people in general, the masses, are bringing their babies, their children to Him so that He would touch them. So there are people around when this encounter happens. That's the context of this encounter with the rich young ruler. Many people saw exactly, and no doubt they knew who this guy, this ruler was. He, he would have been well known in the synagogue. So they, they hear, they see what Jesus says to this man. And it gets them thinking. Many people witnessed the young man walk away sad and, and discouraged and sorrowful. And some of those people were the disciples. The twelve were there, including Peter. And more often than not, Peter is the voice of what the group is thinking in the Gospels. And in verse 28, we see him... He has just seen this man walk away. And in verse 28, he says to Jesus, Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. Now think about what the disciples must have been thinking. Try to put yourself in their sandals as they are witnessing this encounter. By this point in Jesus' ministry, they have been with Him at least two and a half to three years. And they've left their comfort to follow Him. They have left wives and, and, and maybe children behind. I'm not saying that they've abandoned their, their responsibility as husbands. You know, we have every indication that, that Peter... He was married. His wife and his mother-in-law believe there's an encounter earlier in the Gospels, earlier in Luke, where he heals his mother-in-law. Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. So to a, to a degree, many of them that were left behind understood what was going on, at least in some respect. But they had left what they knew to follow Jesus. In Mark 1, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Peter and Andrew casting their nets into the sea. And He says, you know, leave your nets and follow Me. And they do. James and John are there doing the same thing with their father Zebedee. Come follow Me. And they do. Later on in Luke chapter 5, Jesus goes out and He notices a tax collector named Levi or Levi. However you want to pronounce that. We better know him now as Matthew. The Apostle Matthew. And he says, follow me. And he does. They all had left something behind. Again, they left their jobs behind. They left wives and mothers-in-law behind. No doubt other. They left, they left their comfort behind. But when Jesus came calling, they went. And again... I don't think that's an indication they abandoned their duties as husbands and fathers. But Jesus, you know, Jesus isn't going to call you to provide for your family and then tell you to disobey that to go somewhere else. Jesus doesn't work that way. He's not double-minded like that. But He called them out for a singular purpose and they went. And so when the rich young ruler walks away, and they have just witnessed what Jesus has said to him, that causes them to think, what's going on here? And Peter speaks up. 
Behold, we have left our homes and followed you. In other words, we've done what you have told the rich young ruler to do, Jesus. And so, so now what? Now what? Before we get to Jesus' response, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the question that Peter asked itself. We have left. Now, the Greek word for that, that's translated, that carries the meaning of not just leaving something, but abandoning, forsaking, laying aside something, yielding something. The way it's written in Greek could very well be translated, we ourselves have yielded all we have. We ourselves have laid it all aside. We ourselves have abandoned it all. We've left it all behind. We've forsaken our way of life and followed you. They had done what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. They had done what the rich young ruler refused to do. They had done what Jesus said needed to be done to inherit eternal life. And one gets the sense that they may have been wondering why they weren't receiving the benefits of eternal life. In fact, at the end of this passage, we're going to see they they still don't really get it. They still don't understand everything that Jesus is telling them. It's Maybe they were questioning, is it worth it to keep doing this in light of what we have just witnessed? Is it worth it to keep following and keep going about this in light of what's going on in our lives? Or maybe it's time to just go home and go back to our what we, what we knew. Our former our way of life before he called us out of those boats. It's not unlike you and me. When we might be facing a question of whether or not it's worth it to us. Is it worth it to us when we might be facing broken relationships? Is it worth it to us? when following Jesus means we might live a life of financial insecurity? Is it worth it to us when we deal with all manner of earthly problems? You know, companies, any any smart company, any smart business, when they are set out to make a decision about pretty much anything they do, they'll do what's called a cost-benefit analysis. They will do research. They will weigh, let's say... They want to introduce a new product. You know, let's say Coke wants to introduce a new flavor of Coke. They will do a a, a study, maybe a, a pilot program of introducing this new beverage flavor somewhere, and see if it's worth it to release this to the masses. Is it worth the cost of doing this and promoting this and producing this? Are we going to make money off of this? That's what smart companies do. Cost-benefit analysis. But the feeling here and, and is that Peter and the Twelve, that's what they were doing. They were trying to do a little bit of cost-benefit analysis. And Jesus knows it. John, John 2.25 Jesus knows what is in man. Jesus knows what is in you this morning, beloved. He is knowing what's going on in their heads. So here, He seeks to reassure them. He seeks to reinforce 
what it means to follow Him, and not just the cost of following Him, because He does reinforce that. There is a cost. But He reassures them that the benefits of true faith in Jesus so far outweigh the cost that it's not worth even comparing. Let's look again at verses 29 and 30. Peter asked his question in verse 28. In verse 29, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Peter, there's no way you won't receive many times as much what you've given up to follow me. Andrew, there's no way there isn't that you won't receive many times as much as you've given up when you follow me. James, there's no way. John, there's no way you won't receive many times as much as you've given up to follow me. Matthew, the same, and so on and so on. And today, Christian, this morning, if you have left your former way of life, if you are pursuing Christ and not letting other things get in the way, other things hold you back, if you are pursuing Christ, if you are abandoning your personal agenda, your personal priorities, if you're not making your treasure on earth, but making your treasure heaven, if you are following Christ, if you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting Him, if you are obeying Him, if you are going wherever He leads, then the one who Ephesians 3 verse 20 says can do exceedingly abundantly above all you can ask or imagine. The one who John 10.10 says has come to give life and to give it more abundantly. That same Jesus promises that you, Christian, if you have come to Him like this, will receive many times as much. Many times as much of what you give up. Many times as much of what you leave behind. You know, this is, this is where true Christianity separates itself from a lot of the, the fake Christianity that we see being promoted today. Because uh, uh, this sub-Christianity, this superficial kind of faith that is permeating our culture today says, you can trust in Jesus, but He's going to... You don't have to leave things behind. You don't have to... You, you, you can still live the way you want to live. They, you can be a Christian without really acting like He's your Lord. But Jesus says, if you do this, you will receive many times as much as what you leave behind if you follow Jesus. Now note, this does not mean you will have the kind of earthly riches the rich young ruler possessed. You know, Jesus never... He, he, he wasn't a rich man. We don't have evidence that any of the disciples became rich earthly after they knew Christ. Matthew may have been rich before he knew Christ but as a tax collector, but not so much after. There's no guarantee 
you'll have earthly riches when you follow Christ. There's no guarantee that you'll have great health. There's no guarantee you'll live a stress-free, worry-free life apart from conflicts. In fact, Jesus says, you will have conflicts. You will have conflicts. Beloved, if your faith has never brought you into conflict with somebody when you're trying to follow Christ, if that's never brought you into conflict with somebody, wait till next week if you're really following Christ. Or ask yourself, am I truly following Christ? Because conflicts will come. Jesus isn't promising here that following Him equals earthly happiness. Jesus nowhere promises these things, and neither do the apostles. But what we do see in Scripture is that if we follow Christ, the joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength, and that is greater than earthly happiness. Joy is the inner contentment of the heart in the midst of the worst kinds of trials. And joy doesn't come from something we, we, we gin up in ourselves. Joy comes from Christ. Joy comes from the Lord. It, it means having hope when there seems there's, that the life is crashing down around you. You have hope in Christ. And hope is not wishing for a money bag to fall out of the sky. Hope is faith in something yet to be fulfilled. I have not seen heaven yet, but my hope is in heaven. It's certain future faith. That's what biblical hope is. You'll know it at this time, Jesus says. Note that, at this time. They weren't rolling in the dough. They were living a hard life at that time. But Jesus says, at this time you will know many times as much. He says, at this time. That is how Paul and Silas can sing psalms while in the Philippian jail. That's how Peter and John can be confident in their faith as they are arrested by the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem in Acts chapters 3 and 4. That's how John can go on being a faithful apostle of Jesus Christ even after King Herod has had his brother killed in Acts 12. That's what a relationship with Jesus gives you. That's what uh, 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 knowing Christ in a saving way brings into your life and it doesn't go away. Now sometimes we suppress that ourselves by our own following after sinful things, following, messing up our... Even Christians can get their priorities wrong. But knowing Christ doesn't go away. Both now and for eternity, Jesus says. You will know this at this time and in the age to come. Now and for eternity. Or as the hymn says, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and ten thousand aside. Great is thy faithfulness. Many times as much at this time in the age to come and in the age to come eternal life. We have left, Peter said, and Jesus is saying, yes, I know you have. If you've sacrificed for God, He knows exactly what you sacrificed. You know, sometimes as humans, 
we make sacrifices and no one seems to notice them. And maybe you get discouraged because no one seems to notice the sacrifices you're making. Let me caution you on that, beloved, because when you start wanting other people to notice the sacrifices you're making, who are you living for at that moment? Whose approval are you seeking at that moment? Paul says, am I seeking the approval of God or of men? If I'm seeking the approval of men, I am not a bondservant of Christ. You might not get praise from anybody for the obedience you live toward Christ. Be prepared for that. Your audience is an audience of one. And God notices. And Jesus is saying here, I know, and you will receive many times as much. And then verse 31, He took the twelve aside. So Jesus separates Himself and His closest disciples from the crowd because now He has something He particularly wants to say to them. And what is it? Let's look again at verses 31 through 33. He took the twelve aside and said to them, "Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things are written through the pro- all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again." So he's talking about the crucifixion that's right around the corner. And this isn't the first time he's mentioned this to them. Luke twenty or Luke 9, He warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. That's Luke 9. Luke 9.44, another, let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of man. So this is not the first time Jesus has mentioned what's about to happen to Him. But why here? Why here? Why does He do it here? Why bring this up again at this point? Well, beloved, as I read this and as I understand this, He told them what to expect, what was coming again, to show Himself as the ultimate example of somebody who had left it all, of somebody who had laid it all aside, of somebody who had abandoned everything for the sake of following the will of God, His Father. Do you want an example of someone who's left all to follow the will of God? Look no further than your Lord Jesus Christ. We have to remember, before I... I talk a little bit more about that. We have to also remember that the disciples aren't understanding this because to them, a suffering Messiah is is just not fitting their vocabulary. In Judaism of that day, and Judaism of today, by the way, a suffering Messiah does not compute. They were waiting for someone to come in and free Israel from the Roman Empire and set up the kingdom. That's not how Jesus was rolling the first time around. That's not what He came to do the first time around. He instead would be sacrificed. He would be killed. And this this was a struggle for for the Jewish mind. So much so that Paul's going to write 
in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. And even to this day, Jews do not recognize Jesus as their Messiah in part because He abandoned everything instead of claiming for Himself everything. But that's coming later. By the way, they should not have been surprised that He would suffer. You think back through the Old Testament. The Bible, the disciples knew. Genesis 3. Adam and Eve sinned. They try to cover their sin with fig leaves. And God sheds the blood of an animal to cover Adam and Eve's shame. In Genesis 22, Abraham. Abraham is told by God to sacrifice your son Isaac on the altar at Mount Moriah. And right before he does so, stop. I've given you a substitute, this ram that has its thorns, his horns caught in thorns. Think about a crown of thorns in that imagery. And that'll blow your mind a little bit. Blood shed, the lamb of the, the blood of the lamb shed as a substitute for Isaac. The Psalms, Psalm 22 speaks of the crucifixion. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, the end of 53, is maybe the, the clearest, maybe even more clearer than the four Gospels. The clearest description of what really happened at the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The suffering servant, by His wounds we are healed. The blood of the Lamb shed for our sins. And Zechariah 12.10 said that they would look upon Him whom they have pierced. Another reference to the crucifixion. So they should have understood that their Messiah would be a suffering servant. Jesus had to remind the disciples then once more, and more clearly than ever before here, that He's going to Jerusalem so that all the things that were written about by the prophets will be accomplished. That, that, that word son of that, that, that title, Son of Man, by the way, is a messianic term. If you've ever wondered what, what's that when we hear Son of God, what's Son of Man all about? That's a messianic term from Daniel chapter 7. And that's that's part of the reason why maybe they didn't understand that he would be suffering, because in Daniel 7. To Him, the Son of Man, is given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So a crucified Messiah was out of their minds, though Jesus had already told them about it. And so he's pointing to himself as an example. And really, who abandoned more than Jesus? In John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer the night before his death, Jesus prays to his Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished, because it's accomplished now, the hour has come, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do, Now, Father, glorify me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with You. Remember, beloved, Jesus is the second person of the eternal Trinity. 
who has enjoyed non-stop, uninhibited, undefiled glory with the Father for all eternity past up until the moment He took on flesh. Think, we can't even wrap our minds around what Jesus left when He came from heaven to earth to be the way. We sang that song earlier. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. I'd actually prefer to be the way because He is the way. Consider Philippians 2, 5 and following. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but He emptied Himself. He emptied Himself. Now, Jesus did not give up being God when He came to earth, but He emptied Himself of the, the independent use of His divinity of His divine power. He submitted Himself to the Father. Think of, we can't even wrap our, our human minds can't even wrap around what Jesus abandoned to come and save sinners. He left it all, all. More than we will ever abandon. He abandoned it all that we might have many times as much. I cannot get that phrase out of my mind. Many times as much. He would be hand, he says to the disciples here in Luke, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be mistreated. The soldiers, remember how they 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 put the robe on and they spat upon him and they beat him? He was scourged. He was whipped with this this whip that had many ends on it. And, and at the ends was tied wood and metal and glass and Whatever else could cut into the meat and rip it off. It was vicious. That's what Jesus... That's to say nothing of actually being nailed to the cross, by the way. All that happened before He was nailed to the cross. But the third day He would rise again. We think of what we abandoned. And we think, is there a way out of it? Jesus endured the shame for the joy set before in Hebrews says. He knew He would rise again. And on the third day in His resurrection, He received many times as much of the glory because of all those who would repent of their sins and follow Him, joining Him in this eternal life. Jesus said, I'm leaving and I will rise again. And He did. Peter says, we have left. And Jesus finishes the sentence with many times as much eternal life. Today the question for each and every one of us is, have we left our lives for Christ? Have we abandoned all for Jesus? Have we laid our earthly pursuits aside. That doesn't mean you quit your job. I mean, it may God may compel you to quit your job. I I don't know. But it, it doesn't mean you abandon the things God wants you to do on earth. But it means that everything you do on earth is through the lens of how do I follow Jesus in this? 
How do I obey Jesus in this? How is Jesus my Lord in this? Beloved, have you are you looking at your own life like that? Are you abandoning your own life like that? Jesus is not merely our example in how to do this. He's the one who gives us the power to do this. The problem with the rich young ruler is that when Jesus said, sell all and distribute it to the poor and follow me, he went away sad because he realized that's not what he wanted to do. What he should have said is, I'm completely dependent upon you for the power to do this. We must be completely dependent upon the power of God to abandon what needs to be abandoned to follow Him. So ask yourself this morning, what is it in my life that precludes me from living with obedient faith? What am I not abandoning that is an obstacle to genuine obedience to my Lord? What am I missing? Is there something I'm missing? Am I following Christ with my whole heart? What do I need to lay at the feet of God this morning? Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. He gave Himself that you might receive many times as much. If you're holding on to something in your life that's stopping you from obeying God, believe Him, believe Jesus when He says many times as much. Many times as much. Let's pray. Father, compel us to come to You. May Your Spirit penetrate our our hearts like, like a surgeon's scalpel, Father. And just show, expose to our own minds, to our own hearts, the idols that might hold us back, the sins that might hold us back. Father, we pray, we ask You, By Your Holy Spirit, work in us and compel us to leave it all to follow You. Father, we thank You that You sent Jesus into the world to save sinners. Too often, Father, we forget about what Jesus left to do that. When we compare the glory of heaven to the humiliation of the cross, And how Jesus emptied Himself and was willingly humiliated, willingly mocked, willingly slapped and spat on and scourged to say nothing of bearing our sins on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It pleased You to crush Him so that You could give us many times as much. 
Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know You like that, I pray that You will come into their life today and that they will say, I trust in Jesus. I repent of my sins and I want to follow Him. I pray that will happen. Even for the the most seasoned believer here this morning, Father, I pray that they will look into their heart, that You will show them if there's anything, whatever it is, that they need to let go of. Maybe it it is money. Maybe it's something simple as a personal preference. A way they like to do something. I, I don't know. But we all have our things, Father, that need to be laid aside so that we can pursue treasure in heaven. And Father, I pray You will bring us to that collectively and individually today, Father. As we respond just in simple prayer, I pray You will have that happen in us. Work in us both to will and to do according to Your good pleasure. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.